welcome back to our podcast about the climate and health horrors of the Texas Permian Basin oil fields. This episode, we will continue our discussion on the radioactive waste crisis created by fossil fuel production. We are joined by journalist Justin Noble. Justin writes on issues of science and the environment for Rolling Stone, Oxford American, Dismog, and other U.S. magazines investigative sites, and literary journals. He's presently working on a book about the issue of the radioactivity brought to the surface in the oil and gas production process. It is tentatively titled Petroleum 238, Big Oil's Dangerous Secret and the Grassroots Fight to Stop It. Here's my conversation with Justin. Justin, welcome to the podcast. Uh, you've written a lot about the dangerous radioactive component of the oil and gas industry. For example, in your 2020 feature in Rolling Stones entitled America's Radioactive Secret, um, we've well established in this episode how radioactive toxins are in fact a part of uh, the oil and gas waste. Um, and how the Permian Basin is no different, especially as the epicenter of fracking in the U.S. Um, you've also covered at length the, so- the saga of the Permian-based oil and gas waste company, Lotus LLC, which, which I hope you can elaborate for us here. Um, so, so, yes, Justin, welcome. Um, to, to set the ground here. Can you um, tell us how companies usually deal with industry radioactive waste and why Lotus LLC in Andrews, Texas, was a particularly horrifying incident? Yeah, thank you, Miguel. Thank you for having me on the podcast. Um, So to understand Lotus, I'm just going to take a step back and give another overview of what oil field waste is, right? Which I understand folks would have learned a little bit about from Melissa. Melissa's awesome and it's fantastic that you connected with her on this. Um, She's the best. So a lot more than oil and gas comes to the surface at an oil and gas well, right? And we have a variety of different forms of waste, which are essentially natural things from deep down in the earth that are there with oil and gas and they're coming up. And one major form is what the industry calls brine or produced water. It's this really toxic fluid. It's a slurry. It's a lot of liquid and it comes up in copious amounts at virtually any oil and gas well. It has high levels of salt, toxic levels of salt, and it can contain heavy metals at elevated levels and also radium, the radioactive element radium at at high levels. Radium is a heavy metal. Um, And the problem for the oil and gas industry since day one, day one being back in the 1850s, is that this material, you don't want this material necessarily. You want the oil or the gas, but the produced water, the brine is there as well. And so In the early days of the industry, it was just shunted right off into a ditch, into a pond or a pit beside the well. 
Now it often goes to an injection well, a whole slate of issues with injection wells. But for our focus today, the problem is that brine does not just stay brine. It has a lot of solids suspended in it. And we just went through some of them. There's heavy metals, there's radium. So if you're holding brine or produced water, if you're holding it in a tank, as we often see at the wellhead, there's tanks for oil, there's tanks for brine. You're holding it there in a tank or you're holding it there in a truck, which is transporting it to an injection well, you will invariably get what the regulators or the industry refer to as sludge. This sludge is just the solid gunky stuff in brine. It settles out to the bottom and that will often, often have an enhanced radioactivity level. So where brine is, um, as fluids go, reasonably radioactive and radioactive enough that by various definitions, we can define it as radioactive. Um, the sludge will have even higher levels. And the EPA actually has a page on T-norm and they define in detail what T-norm wastes are. And again, these are technologically enhanced, naturally occurring radioactive materials. It's the way that regulators often define oil field, radioactive oil field waste. Um, and right there on the EPA's page, they will tell you that sludge is one of the highest forms. It's one of the hottest forms. So we also have drill cuttings coming up at a wellhead. And this is just very simple. Like you dig a hole at the beach, you know, to make a sandcastle, you pull the stuff out. Those are like the sand cuttings that you pull out. In drilling a well, you're just going much deeper and you're pulling stuff out too. And these are drill cuttings. And for much of the industry's history, wells were vertical. They went straight down and they hit a pocket of oil and gas that is trapped at pressure in the rock and the stuff fountains out to the surface. Right, well, we're now right. going, yeah, and this we refer to as conventional oil and gas. We're now going down to the mother load layer, uh, which is often a black shale layer. These are the layers that literally where oil and gas is born. And it's often a layer that forms on the bottom of a shallow, warm ocean where there's a lot of organic life happening at the surface. It falls to the bottom. You get this mucky layer compressed over time um, and compacted and you get an oil and gas bearing layer. It's a black shale. With fracking, we're not just drilling down vertically, we're now drilling horizontally through the black shale and black shales tend to have higher radioactivity levels as well. So we don't just have the liquid slurry, the brine produced water to worry about, and then the sludge that will form from that. We have the drill cuttings, which can, according to the government reports that have assessed the issue, and there are not many of them, but there are some, it can have elevated levels of radioactivity right there in the drill cuttings. So now what to do with this waste? Often, as I described, in the early days of the industry, it would literally just be put there right on site in the form of a pit. The liquids would go into the pit with the thought that they could evaporate away and the solids would go into the pit and be buried. And versions of that still happen across parts of the country, especially in Texas and North Dakota. We have a major problem with pits, but much of this waste is now gonna go to a landfill. Um, but the radioactivity levels are often too high for the waste to be accepted at normal landfills, which in the eastern states is often a landfill that also takes household garbage. In the western states, there's more likely to be a specific landfill designated for oil field waste. 
um, and that's the case in Texas. But still, this much of this radioactive waste, especially the sludge, sometimes parts of the drill cuttings, and then other types of waste that I haven't mentioned yet, like filter socks, um, which are used to capture the sediment in brine. So again, you're, you're collecting the gunk in the brine. You imagine that's going to have higher levels, and they do. That is too high to go to a landfill. So this waste has to be de dealt with. And the real black box of this issue is that oil field waste is not considered to be hazardous by the US government. And the, that is the law of the land. The federal government is what we live under and they make the rules and their rule is that oil field waste is not hazardous. Doesn't matter that it has all sorts of materials in it that designate hazards um, when seen by an independent eye. Overall, it's not hazardous. And so even though you have this waste that is really concerning, it can often go to normal landfills, except these landfills have radioactive um, radioactivity sensors or alarms, various ways to check that. And they do have regulations on that alone because landfills are very worried about radioactivity. So you're gonna end up tripping the alarms and this has happened across the country with a lot of oil field waste. So where do you put it? And what's happened is what I think, uh, one of the most concerning aspects of the oil and gas industry, because of the very amorphous and loose regulations governing oil field waste, you've had a number of really in my opinion, sloppy and shady operators come up to deal with oil field waste. And right now I'm not making a statement to say they all are, but you've created space for very shady, sloppy people to enter this game, to throw together a, a system where they're supposedly treating or cleaning and to make some quick money doing this. And this is the case across the country. You have various companies that will say their role is to take oil field waste and what's called down blend it. They'll try and mix the more radioactive stuff with less radioactive stuff so it can then go to a traditional landfill, which is a lot cheaper than if they had to send it to somewhere meant for dealing with radioactive waste. Um, and and the more end up with, a, yeah, the, the more that's being produced, the more oil and gas that's being pumped out of the ground, the more this demand increases for, like you said, these sloppy, uh, shady um, companies that don't want to um, ring the alarm bells of landfills, right? Yeah, it, exactly. And let, it, right, the more produced, the more facilities. And um, it would be great for there to be more data on this, but often we're trying to scrap together numbers we have on exactly how many facilities there are like this doing what's often called treatment. Um, and I'll give you one example, and this gets us directly to Lotus. I'll give you an example because it's just come up with a story that I did for the smog, which is an oil a radioactive oil field waste treatment facility in Ohio called Austin Master Services. Now, Austin Master Services takes a lot of these sludges, drill cuttings, and filter socks, some of the more radioactive, known radioactive items in the industry, and they process them in a massive old steel plant. And we have the inspection reports from the Ohio Regulatory Agency going back years on this facility 
they actually visit it. They do inspections and they find out that there's leaks in the ceiling. There's waste leaking out the door. They actually have photos from the state inspectors of tires tracking this waste out the door. They take levels and the levels are well above background and the workers have virtually no protection at all. And they're walking around in puddles of this waste in some of the photos. It's a nightmare and it's a really concerning health problem too. And now you have a local group in Ohio that's taken samples outside the door of that facility. And you know, it's not really surprising to me because the state files show waste is exiting the facility. This local environmental group has now found that radioactivity levels are elevated outside this facility. Um, what this facility is doing is this very concerning job of downblending. And they will tell you that the lower stuff goes to a local landfill. I still don't know which one. The higher stuff is packed onto trains and was going to a facility in Utah that was designated to accept high, um, some of this material, the higher radioactive waste that the oil and gas industry produces. And when we look at this facility in Utah, and a company called Energy Solutions, we found out that on several occasions, these trains of waste from Ohio to Utah actually arrived leaking um, with the implication that Yikes. they leaked across the country. Jeez. Um, so this is, when I say sloppy, this is what I mean by sloppy. Now that waste is actually no longer going to Utah. And I've just recently learned it is going to Lotus in the West Texas desert. So Amazing. Well... So Lotus is a really interesting place. Lotus happens to have um, what I would say is a very valuable permit. Uh, they have a permit that enables them to inject radioactive oil field waste into a salt cavern. And now the Department of Energy has looked at the issue well before the age of modern fracking. They've looked at the issue of radioactive oil field waste and they determined that a salt cavern is really the best place to put this stuff. Um, it's, they went through a variety of options, including plowing it into fields, which is still done in parts of Texas and Oklahoma. But they said, no, there's problems there. But a salt cavern is really opposes the least amount of harm to the workers and to the public. Mm -hmm. And that makes some degree of intuitive sense. A salt cavern is essentially a bubble of salt, a very large bubble of salt below the ground um, at depths of thousands of feet often. And if you can dissolve the salt, which is very easy um, to do just by running water down to the salt cavern, that's called solution mining, you create a space, you create as close as we can get on planet Earth to an underground storage locker. And once you've created that storage locker, which is the hollowed out salt cavern, you presumably have created a good place to put this radioactive oil field waste. Um, and Lotus has a salt cavern. They are legitimately on a salt cavern. An early question of mine was, is there even a salt cavern there? There is a salt cavern there. There is a salt cavern there. That there would have been quite a scam. Right, they have <laughs> a salt cavern. Um, there are salt caverns across Louisiana and Texas, and, and Lotus does uh, sit on a salt cavern there in okay. West Texas. Um, so they have a permit to, to legally dispose of radioactive oil field waste, um, and very few people have this sort of permit. There right. are sites like the site in Utah, which happens to 
deal a lot with the nuclear industry. So they have appropriate permits for dealing with moderately radioactive waste as well. There aren't that many places with those permits. So Lotus becomes a really attractive option for anyone in the oil and gas industry who wants to deal with the radioactive oil field waste. And in a world where all parts of the system were running on the level, um, that seems fine. It's out there in the West Texas desert. It's a lot further away from humans than a lot of the landfills I've been to in Ohio and West Virginia, where there's homes and playgrounds right down the street, or in Texas for that matter, um, where there's homes right next to these landfills. So we're going to take it out to the desert. Um, it's more than 10 miles outside of the city of Andrews. Um, I think 16 or 20, I'm forgetting the exact number, but I visited this site on more than one occasion and it is legitimately uh, out in the middle of nowhere. Um, the problem is that once I received the records from the Railroad Commission, we learned that there were numerous incidences of inappropriately handling of this waste by Lotus. And we have a number of inspection reports that occurred kind of like on the eve of fracking in the early 2000s where Railroad Commission inspectors would go to Lotus and they would note that waste was sitting in tanks, that the waste they had seen on the prior visit was still in the same spot, sitting in a tank, um, that waste was even leaking from these tanks, and also that some of these tanks had fairly high levels of radioactivity, high enough that a, wor a worker, were they not properly protected and were they spending a lot of time near that tank, would start to receive worrisome exposures. And these are laid out right there in the files. Um, and just a little context on that, um, this, these files were obtained via a formal records re request to the Railroad Commission. Um, they have an open records office and, um, you know, it, it's an appropriate way for us journalists to get information. Sometimes states are very, um, sometimes states are very, um, um, they, they make it difficult to get that information. The Railroad Commission, uh, after a little bit of back and forth, uh, passed along like over 2000 pages of documents. And it took me, um, it took me a long time to go through all that those sounds documents. like it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But within there were, were some of the secrets of what's happening at Lotus. Right. That was, right. Um, that right. was one thing. So you're starting to build this idea of, well, is this waste even really being injected down into the salt cavern? That was implied right there in the ins inspection reports by the Railroad Commission. Um, and I'll let you go with the question from here, but now we're into the heart of it. So yeah, we're, we're, we're right. We're setting, you set the scene very well. Uh, we have the, the characters in place. Lotus is here in, in West Texas. Um, they're receiving a lot of waste. You've just explained why, because they have this very valuable permit, the salt cavern. Um, now let's introduce um, another character into the mix, the whistleblower. Um, what did this anonymous whistleblower um, within Lotus reveal in this story? Yeah, so the the whistleblower is not actually uh, does not actually work for Lotus. I think that's oh, um, got it. All right. Um, My bad. Yeah, no. Yeah, no, just want to be very clear about um, as much information as we can convey about the whistleblower, but they are not 
and employ for Lotus, but they do work and have done work in the oil field waste sector and had visited Lotus and were familiar with Lotus and a number of other oil field waste sites across the country. Um, and their take on Lotus was that um, was um, really a follow-up to what the Railroad Commission had noted in their own inspection reports, which is that uh, Lotus was uh, indeed having difficulty um, getting the waste underground to the salt cavern and waste, according to this whistleblower, and the photos they took uh, appeared to be piling up around the site. Um, and the whistleblower laid out in detail um, what they thought were the financial um, incentives of doing something like that. And okay. I can't, yeah, which is that um, disposing of waste at a traditional landfill um, is fairly cheap. Disposing of waste, um, and this is all done by the ton or by the pound, disposing of waste at a facility that um, is appropriately permitted to accept radioactive waste, it's going to be much more expensive. Um, and so what the whistleblower laid out is this scenario where um, Lotus was able to to charge high value for this waste. And, um, and the whistleblower did not see evidence that all the waste was making it into the salt cavern, which is the expensive part of this process. Right, so therefore right. the waste is just piling up. And that sounds, you know, like, um, the profit is going to be high from that. And what the whistleblower also laid out were some of the technical challenges in getting the waste into a salt cavern. And I think this is evident in the photos we have of the site. So, okay, we get it. There's a salt cavern. It's this big locker below the earth or as close as we're going to get to a locker. We still have to get the waste from the surface of the earth into the locker. How is that done? That's done with an injection well, which is the same type of an in injection well we know of for the oil industry because they use that to, to get the brine down, right? But mm -hmm. brine produced water is liquid. It's a lot easier to shoot liquid down a hole than it is to shoot sludge or for that matter, to shoot metal pipes caked in a radioactive scale. How the heck do you do that? So um, with the sludge at least, um, and, and with some of the other material, uh, and this is laid out in the article, essentially it goes through kind of like a grinding process. Um, and sometimes that type of machinery is referred to as a pug mail, a pug mill, um, but you're, you're, you want to macerate the waste up, get it to a point where it's fine enough to be injected down. And um, the whistleblower used a term which is used across the industry, T-norm injection or T-norm slurry injection. So you're taking this sl slightly liquidy, sludgy, messy waste, and you're mixing it up enough so you can inject it down the hole. That's the idea. And what right. the whistleblower is conveying is that they're not? Is that this is really hard? T norm slurry injection is very expensive. It's complicated. It's a technically challenging operation. It's doable, but you need to put a lot of money and effort into getting your tools right and getting your science right. And what the whistleblower observed at the Lotus site is that they were not getting this right. They were not doing it right, and therefore the waste was piling up. Lotus's reply to that is that. Um, they think they are doing it right. They're, in, they're investing more money in technology and um, they believe that they're going to be able to handle this material um, because of these investments and they don't see a problem with the way they're um, trying to get the waste into the salt cavern. So um, 
Yeah. Justin, can you tell us, uh, can you describe these photos that were sent and uh, what this waste piling up looks like? We, it, you, you've described, um, I mean, the, all of the financial logic for which why um, a Lotus would want to charge this premium for, for a premium um, process of, of storing radioactive waste. Um, but it's how, how did the, the photos, um, what did they look like? What does waste piling up look like? Right, right. Um, so the, um, the extraordinary thing about the records I received from the Railroad Commission is that they came along with quarterly reports. And in Texas, uh, many facilities in the oil and gas industry have to file some form of quarterly report. Um, and with Lotus's quarterly report, it gives some data on every single load coming in. And it also gives radioactivity levels. So, um, it, whereas a lot of states were guessing what are they taking, how much are they taking, I was able to look through and know exactly what they're taking and from who they were taking it and what the radioactivity levels were. At Lotus, it's a lot of what I described to you, the sludge, the tank bottoms, this gunky stuff that forms on the bottom of a variety of different types of oil field tanks. It was also scale. And scale is this very hard mineral deposit that will form on the inside of oil field pipes. So we think again back to this brine, this produced water that comes up the vertical drill hole with oil and gas. It's filled with heavy metals. It's filled with radioactive metals. You're going from a high pressure, high temperature environment deep within the earth to a much lower pressure, lower temperature environment near the earth's surface. And so just like with your kitchen sink system, you'll have gunk. Um, and minerals uh, settle out and coat the pipes when you change pressure, when you change flow. Mm -hmm. Similar thing happens in oil field pipes. And these pipes can get coated in this mineral scale, which is just the metals in the brine and in the mix of oil and gas coming up, settling out on the surface of the pipe, but forming a very hardened scale. That scale can be extraordinarily rich in radium, whereas produced water, you know, again, has a reasonable amount of radium pipe scale can have an extraordinary amount of radium levels as high uh, and this again right on the EPA page on oil field waste levels recorded by the EPA as high as 400,000 picocuries per gram for radium um, and for context and what it, what is what is that what, how does that figure translate general background levels on planet earth are in the range of one picocarry per gram for radium. So we're like 400,000 times background and the EPA has designated five picocarries per gram as a good cleanup level limit for a contaminated site. So if you have a super fun site that is contaminated, you're trying to get rid of all the bad stuff, they wanna keep radium below five picocuries per gram, which is about five times background, background generally being about one picocurry per gram. Here we have 400,000 picocuries per gram. That's as, that is um, a high level for scale, but often scale is in the range of 10,000, 2,000, 80,000, still well above these levels. So scale can be extraordinarily hot and the problem is it's stuck on so tight to the pipe that it's very difficult to remove. That removal job is sometimes done at what's called a pipe cleaning job, a pipe cleaning yard. And these can be really dangerous places for oil field workers. And um, this is sounds where like it. Have, 
yeah, we've had a lot of lawsuits that come up out of Mississippi and Louisiana where oil field workers at these pipe cleaning yards, they're trying to remove this scale. They're trying to chisel it out. It creates a lot of dust. They breathe in the dust. And there's been all sorts of cancers. And there's been a number of lawsuits successful in favor of the workers on this issue. Often the scale can't be removed and the industry will just send the pipes somewhere. And what appears to be happening at Lotus is they're not necessarily getting the scale removed from the pipes, they're getting the pipes still gunked up with the scale. And we know that because when we look at some of these photos, we see what looks like a pool noodle, you know, like sticking up out here and there. These are pieces of oil field piping. It's the vertical oil field piping, and there'll often be a little cap on the end, which is an appropriate way to try and keep in the scale so it doesn't simply blow away. Um, but it's evident from the photos and also from the Railroad Commission files that a lot of pipe scale is coming in. But again, it comes in often attached to the full pipe. So this, we start again to get into the difficulty of how do you deal with that? And right, because right. I, yeah, I don't have a full response from Lotus or from the Railroad Commission. How do you grind down a radioactive mm -hmm. pipe that's 30 feet long into something mm -hmm. that can be injected down a hole? Yeah. Um, I don't know, but presumably that's what is supposed to be happening there. So, so I'm looking at the I'm looking at the photos right now from the the smog article, and I mean, if if I didn't know any better, this this scandalous photo looks just kind of boring. It looks like pipes in tanks. But you're describing to us how these aren't any old pipes. These are dangerous pipes um, that have radioactive elements. I, I see also there are, there's like uh, yellow stickers on them, on these tanks. Uh, can you tell us about what these yellow stickers were signify? Yeah, so I just want to make sure I'm looking at the exact same photos as you. But I believe there are some stickers um, with the classic radioactive yeah with, with with the radioactive symbol and right. they're just kind of slapped onto these tanks um here's here's a question uh for you obviously this is not the intended and the ideal version of storing these radioactive pipes right just in uncovered tanks well right yeah and i think you know you bring up the important point which is that i mean you could show this to um you know, you can show this to a child, be like, is this a clean room or a dirty room? <laughs> is this a clean space or a dirty space? It's a dirty space. I mean, it looks sloppy. It right, looks, right. It, it um, does. Now, rusty in the photo, tanks. These tanks are rusty. Yeah, falling it it apart. does not look. Exactly. Exactly. It does not look like a well-run facility. And Lotus reacted uh, very aggressively and um, energetically to the photos and to the idea that we were going to publish them. And they're um, were quite furious that um, a whistleblower existed that had supplied us with this information and um, took uh, steps to try and find out who that whistleblower was. Um, they also offered to um, and they and they said that, you know, this isn't representative of Lotus. Fair enough. You know, uh, maybe uh, the, these photos are Lotus. They didn't say this wasn't our facility, but they said this isn't representative of us, you know, and, and that um, that 
could be true, right? Maybe they look better on a better day. Maybe we caught them or the whistleblower caught them on a bad day and every other day things look fine there. Well, again, we have the record from the Railroad Commission to indicate that they, uh, inspectors were finding versions of what this photo found as well. So it does seem in line with what's been laid out of the facility, but Lotus offered me the opportunity to visit the site um, again, this is during the pandemic. I'm here in New York, and this really wasn't um, an appropriate trip. We also had a tight deadline at this point for the story. Um, but Desmog has a photo they work with in El Paso, great photographer named Justin Hamill. Justin is um, used to flying over sites. He reports also on immigration areas and getting up in the skies of Texas and knowing really well the rules of how to appropriately take photos from right. planes is something Justin's familiar with. Um, and so Justin was able to get up over the site in a small plane. And Justin's photos show a site that does look neater. It looks more neatly arranged. The barrels do seem to be very well organized and, um, and concentrated in a certain part of the facility, but you still can visibly see what's in them. So they're open to the wind, they're open to the sun. Uh, and it still does not appear that there is a liner protecting those um, presumably quite radioactive materials from the soil and then the groundwater table that would be below that at some point. So, so, so all the, all these, all this like radioactive dust can just blow away into the wind because they don't have any um, lining on, on the tanks is, is how I'm understanding it. Yeah, absolutely. And that would be my concern as well. And a simple way to track that would be for the Railroad Commission to put up radiation monitors, air monitors um, on the fence line of the facility um, at certain points um, on the ground, be regularly testing um, the soil levels, testing right around that site where all this stuff is concentrated. I'm not aware that that testing has happened. I haven't seen it, but there are ways to assess whether or not uh, the concern you just raised, which I think is a valid concern, is stuff blowing away in the wind. There'd be ways to test that and determine yes or no, but I'm not aware of those uh, tests happening. Right. And, and there's also uh, this anonymous citizens group um, based in Andrews that um, brought this up. Um, they brought a um, health concern. Uh, can you tell us about what this citizens group was concerned about, um, particularly when it comes to um, uh, additionally, how does this uh, pose a risk to our water sources as a um, region, not, not only as people yeah. within Andrews, but as a broader Southwest Permian Basin area. Yeah, so now this is a great point and there's a couple things I wanna highlight here. So one is the issue that it seems like you all have focused on in your series here, and it's so important. You have a state regulatory agency within um, Texas, the Railroad Commission in this case, doing investigations and finding what appears to be really concerning issues. That is right there in their reports from the early 2000s. And yet the facility continues to operate, even more waste continues to come in, and it does not seem... Um, there does not seem to be regulatory action on the matter. Um, and then you have what I have found across fracking country, oil and gas country, is it's up to the, the residents, the citizens, the community, the workers who have to deal with this head on to ring the alarm bell themselves. The state exactly. has seen their 
Yeah, it's like a Twilight Zone episode. The state sees the problem, but they just lay it out in a report and then they go into another report and they find the problem again. And then they come back a month later and the problem's still there and that's it. And, and finally a worker, or in this case, um, a group that called themselves Concerned Citizens of Andrews County, Texas, they wrote this letter to the Railroad Commission. And um, again, I received like over 2000 pages of um, documents from the Railroad Commission. This letter must have been reproduced like seven or eight, maybe even more times. It was there throughout in various ways. You know, things mm -hmm. get overcopied sometimes when you do a records request. So at some point, the Railroad Commission, you know, thought of this letter as important enough to copy it a bunch of times and respond to it. And there's all sorts of notes on it. But this letter is people in Andrews, they're remaining anonymous. And they're going to the site, they're talking to the workers, and they're noticing things themselves, um, such as leaky barrels, um, barrels stored along. Um, sorry, I'm just looking to see if they actually observed leaky barrels. The citizens group might not have observed leaky barrels, but they observed, quote, um, a large pile of dirt and rocks on the north fence line that appears to be a uh, radioactive contaminant as well. A trio of 500 barrel frack tanks that are completely full of what appears to be radioactive waste. So they observed this concerning situation right. and they also right. talked to, yeah, they talked to workers and the workers expressed concern. And then furthermore, one final point is this citizens group, um, they say that the reason they're staying anonymous is because um, of the litigious nature of, um, of Lotus. Um, we, we fear not only reprisal from him personally, but also from his battery of attorneys. So, you know, to smog dealing with Lotus and Lotus's aggressive response, well, this, these residents dealt with that same type of thing 22 years ago when they tried to ring the alarm bell on this facility. So um, go, going back to the, the, the whistleblower, um, they uh, express concern that, that Lotus, quote, poses uh, uh, a black eye to the oil and gas industry and Texas regulators, uh, which brings up the question, how much is Lotus an anomaly? Is, is irresponsible radioact radioactive waste management common? Um, and is responsible and safe management of these radioactive waste materials, is that even possible? Right. Um, Lotus, in my reporting and in my view, is not an anomaly at all because of the loose regulations around oil field waste and in particular around radioactive oil field waste. You have enabled a nightmare situation um, and essentially you're just kind of like running the American economy. This is just American entrepreneurship you know, moving forward, there's a material that has to be dealt with. Someone's going to make a company that deals with it. Someone's going to make a company that trucks it. Someone's going to, you know, get the appropriate permits or enough permits um, to be able to file it away somehow. Th that's what's happening here. Um, we're like little ants, right? And we got to like run our little businesses. But because rules don't exist and no one's really examined in detail this stuff, these people are running their little ant businesses in an absurd world where there's no harms. And there are are very real harms to these things. So everywhere where we see oil field waste, we see um, we see danger. I see danger. I see concern, and I see a company that, in my eyes, is not running it in an appropriate way. Workers who are 
absolutely not appropriately trained um, to deal with what they're dealing with. And I'm speaking now beyond Lotus to answer your question. I've spoken to workers who are running in Ohio radioactive oil field waste treatment centers And they've proudly conveyed to me that they have no training, that they don't have science classes beyond high school, but they know this stuff. They've been in the oil field their whole life and they know this stuff. And of course, I get the idea of, um, you know, we don't all need to like get a high school degree or a college degree. There's a lot to be learned from the world and life experience. But radioactivity is something that you do need at least some training. And these people hadn't even taken courses on it. And yet they're proudly, excitedly running this facility. And by the way, they had partnered with a company from Luxembourg to, in this specific specific case to deal with this waste. So um, that's- And I imagine they're hearing that from their boss. They're like, that their bosses are telling them like, hey, you should be proud of this. Like, and they're, they're not- they're most likely not aware of how violently dangerous this is. Same, same with the actual drilling. It's very dangerous. And um, yeah, I, I guess that, that can be a, a great uh, point to, to round out this interview. Um, how is this a workers' right issue? Yeah, this is, this is really such an important point because you know oil and gas gets split often between the people pushing for climate change and the people pushing for jobs. Well, once you start looking at the waste issue, you realize that the people screwed over the most by this industry are its workers because they are not told what they are dealing with. They are not even given basic PPE. I mean, we're talking about um, simple training on how to not eat, drink, and smoke, smoke cigarettes around this waste in many of the facilities I've observed would be would be invaluable information that would prevent a lot of harm. Now, Lotus does um, seem to have a much more uh, robust worker training program, at least from my back and forth with their officials than a lot of the facilities that I visited across the country. But in general, what we see is that the worker is on the front line of the exposure. The worker is told to go into a brine tank uh, and shovel this stuff out shovel out the sludge, which can have extraordinary levels of radium, of radioactive lead, of polonium, which is another very, very dangerous radioactive element. They're told to shovel this stuff out and they pass it out the door. Sometimes they have to squeegee off the walls of the brine tank. Um, That sounds horrifying. It is horrifying. And I've often asked workers, how do you how do you even do that job? I mean, the smells there from other materials in the waste from some of the fuels and the hydrocarbons are going to be atrocious. And some of the chemicals, how do you deal with that? And they say, oh, well, you know, you can't like you can't chicken out and not do it. It's a tough guy thing. You got to go in there and do it. And if the last guy stayed in for 20 minutes, you got to try and stay in for longer. And the oil and gas industry uses this macho mentality. Um, They really embed this in workers um, to enable them to take these risks, to go that extra mile and take the risks. And they're just being a man. They're just being tough. But what they're really doing is breathing in radioactive material, which is going to potentially deposit in their lung or be carried to other parts of their body, you know, and, and that's, that's the crime of this. And the oil and gas industry has known that these materials are radioactive for decades now, and yet they still enable these practices to continue.
We hope you've enjoyed this conversation with Justin, as well as our previous episode with Melissa. Besides covering the climate emergency created by the Permian, we've thoroughly covered how oil and gas waste itself is enough to justify a full transition to clean, renewable energy. Well, how do we do that? How will this affect workers depending on this industry? How can we plug in fossil fuel worker roughnecks to be part of this just transition away from fossil fuels? The next two and final episodes of this series will focus on these questions. We will speak to a ranch owner, policy expert, and a former oil and gas worker. Stay tuned.